If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is the Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to episode number 48 of the Great Writer Share podcast with me, Daniel Wilcox, where every week I hijack an hour or so of time from some of the kindest and hardest working writers around today to join me on the show and discuss everything that makes them tick, raw and bounce. Today's date is Wednesday the 12th of August and we'll dive straight into my personal update. In fiction news, I am chipping away the words. I've actually just uh, wrapped up the first draft of When Winter Comes, episode four, which I'm very, very pleased about after the strategy day that me and Tasha Black had last week, um, which by the time this airs will probably be a week and a half, two weeks. Um, the productivity, the production schedule has really sort of helped me focus down and get to a point in which I wrapped up that draft very, very quickly. Um, it's it's in a position where I'm just going through, I'm editing it now, just sort of chipping away at that to give to my beta readers, then to an editor, then to publish um, and be up for pre-order by the end of this month. And it's a good position to be in. I feel... Uh, I was I was a little concerned about the, the timings I'd given myself with some of the releases of these series, uh, but at the minute I'm working one week ahead of schedule, which works very, very well in my in my favour considering um, some of the other things I've got going on. Um, but it's been a very fun story to write, and I'm going backwards and forwards at the minute between how long the series is going to be, because I've got the, I've got the overall arching story. I know where it's going to end. I know the bullet points I want to put in. But as I'm writing it, it's expanding in places I didn't think it would. It's shrinking in other places. And at the minute, this is episode four. I'm confident there are going to be at least six books. I think there'll be seven. There is a chance there might be eight. Um, But it totally depends on which direction I take this story. Uh, Because I am having a bit of fun treading the line between Plotter and Panzer. Like I said, I've got the, the overall arc sorted. Um, and then I'm just sort of weaving between the lines, playing with some of the characters, uh, introduce a few extra people that weren't in the planning. That's quite fun to uh, see from their perspective. Uh, the the monsters in it have changed a fair bit over over the different iterations of the story over, well, since it was first in my mind in like 2016. Um, so there's a lot of fun going on. It's really, really nice just to put it out there. And it's getting really good feedback from readers. It's still selling. It's still doing its thing. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into a position where it's wrapped up and it's box setted. But obviously, I'm trying to just enjoy the process along the way because that's one thing that I've definitely found lately is the more you enjoy actually the process of writing and creating the story, the the better it is, not only in the product itself, because you've written something that you enjoy, um, but why would you want to spend the whole time suffering just to reach that end goal? So um, yeah, that's going well. And that's that's my fiction. In nonfiction news, I started doing um, my first batch of heavy research into my productivity book. Um, I've collated a list of different books on productivity, uh, particularly as they pertain to writing, but not necessarily all completely writing, because 
what I'm thinking going into this book is that there are going to be a lot of universal truths that sort of cross over the barriers from not even just creativity in general, but different facets of life. So I think it's going to be a useful book. I'm going to target it at writers, but I think it does have some universality there in terms of mindset and things, which obviously long-term listeners of the show know is the, the, the subject that I love. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into it. And it's uh, if, if anyone has any suggestions for any books that have really helped them crank up their positivity, their productivity, their motivation, their inspiration, all that kind of stuff, then then do uh, send me an email or just drop a, drop a message on Facebook or something and just let me know because I'd be really interested to dive into some books that maybe aren't necessarily within the canon but teach those lessons and give me some subject that could be or some sub, some subject matter that could be useful to to insert into the book somewhere so yeah if you've got anything do let me know an additional exciting bit of news is that I will have a new book coming out in the very near future and a good friend of mine and a good friend of the show and just a great person in general who I talk about a lot on the show, Mr. Jay Thorne of the Career Author Podcast, of theauthorlife.com, of Molten Universe Media, um, previous guest on the show, I believe, off the top of my head, he might have been around episode seven or nine. Um, Jay has been busy as hell behind the scenes bringing about a series that is designed to help writers from all levels with a whole host of different topics. Um, and the series itself is called Nine Things Career Authors Don't Do. And essentially, it's a massive collaboration project in which he has written an introductory book that gives an overview of nine things um, that career authors don't do. And then a load of other people have jumped in and collaborated and created loads of different sub subtopics subtopics from from the main branch so you've got people writing books on health on time management on finance on rebel mindset <laughs> sasha black um so there's a whole host of different people chipping in working with jay and it looks like it's going to be a, a very much ever-growing series a lot of it is quite experimental and i'm excited to see how it does for jay um and the exciting part for for me anyway <laughs> is that i do have a um a project within that that series itself. So I will have a book coming out on nine things career authors don't do as it relates to marketing. Um, and I'm excited to see that come out, but I believe that will come out in sort of a, another wave of releases. So um, for people who are really interested in finding out more about this, because I know that I am, I will have Jay coming on in the next couple of weeks to discuss his tactic, his approach, why he's why he's doing all this kind of stuff. Um, people who are familiar with Jay Thorne will know that he is the collaboration god, and uh, it, it's not unusual for him to dive into something like this. And I'm really, really excited to ask him some of those deeper questions and really nailing down what his hopes are, what he expects, and to seeing where it goes. So keep an eye out for that. And I will drop a link in the show notes for anyone that wants to check out the series page. And finally, we are two weeks away now from episode number 50. And I don't think I've ever been this excited to hit uh, a milestone on the podcast. Um, like I said, before with my old podcast with Luke Condor, The Story Studio, we hit episode 50 and that was a milestone. And then we went on a permanent hiatus. And yeah, I don't know. There seems to be something about uh, episode 50. Um, and I really don't know what it is. I think it's because I, I obviously took a hiatus around... Uh, December January time because of things in my personal life and having to prioritize and all that kind of stuff I think there was generally a part of me around that time where I wondered if I would ever come back I knew that I wanted to uh, but I think when you're you know trying to work hard at prioritizing and conserving your mental health through sort of difficult times in your life you do get to a point where you're like I don't know if this is entirely necessary and what I have found is over over the weeks and weeks of recording and speaking to different people is that this this podcast feeds me and I love I love having the chance to sit down with guests every week and so, yeah, two weeks away from episode 50, and that's that's pretty huge. Um, as I've said most weeks in the last few weeks, uh, there will be a big announcement, which I'm currently working on a lot of stuff behind the scenes. I'm very, very excited for what's to come. Um, I won't obviously say anything else. I will, I will say 
that current patrons are aware of what's going on and they're very excited. So, you know, going to plug that there. Um, but if you want to find out, you can jump over to patreon.com forward slash great writers share and get involved in all the news, all the good stuff, all the early access to episodes, all the bonus, everything. Um, and you can find out there, but also the community is massively growing at the minute and people are really getting chatty over in the Slack group. So I'm, I'm excited to see how this is going, but yeah, two weeks, episode 50. But that does remind me as well, something I've not put on my notes that I definitely did want to mention is, uh, congratulations to Joanna Penn for reaching 500 episodes of the creative pen podcast. And, uh, I don't know if you listen to this, Joanna. Uh, if you're not, then hi. You, you know you can find that at some point if you ever do come back to this episode. But uh, 500 episodes, man. I try. I try and think about it. And it was for those who haven't listened ever to the Creative Pen. Number one, check it out. It's fantastic. There's some really useful content on there. Um, and Joanna knows her stuff. Um, but also the the episode itself that launched celebrating the 500th. I think there were so many useful lessons in there to take away. And she has been doing the podcast for 11 years. You see her iterations over the years from never having written fiction to growing into really sort of embracing the podcast to doing her personal intros, all this kind of stuff. And you can really see the growth of an author there. And I think the 500th episode was fantastic because it cut back to some of those old episodes and you could really hear the journey in Joanna over the years. And I think that's something that a lot of people, particularly if you're early on in your author journey, that is something that will resonate a lot. And I think it's something that you need to understand that this is a long game um most people if they're overnight successes they, they're not overnight successes never happen there'll be years of secret work behind the scenes if you really really want to make it in the writing game you've got to be prepared to knuckle down eat some crap for a few years and just work on getting yourself out there i, I don't know a writer who hasn't done that um and yeah congratulations joanna if you are listening um fantastic stuff like i'm i <laughs> will see if a great writer share gets a 500 i'd like to think it would uh but you never know you never know what the future brings so yeah congratulations thank you to everyone in the patreon group and on the facebook group as well for answering the question that i threw out last week which was how do you keep your creative passion burning and we'll start with some of the responses got one from yanni jade who says i love movies and music so i will watch anything and everything that sparks my interest or something that i've watched thousands of times because it's great and what i want to strive towards Music helps me set the tone or sometimes find the tone as well. Holly Lyon says movies and music for me too, although lately I found TV more inspiring. Music will always be where I escape to. It can completely change my mood within three minutes. It creates atmosphere for my writing, sparks ideas and connects me to my characters or setting as and when I need to do so. Uh, totally agree with that. I have the same playlist that I've been listening to for about four years that I made myself and it just helps me like switch into the right gears. Meg Jolly says the only time it ever really stutters is when it's not fun. So I try to make sure every project is one that I love, one I'm so compelled to write that it gets me through the sticky middle section where it's hard, for me anyway, to push through. Plus lots of reading and TV and movies. So there's a lot of themes there with absorbing the content and taking the input as well as creating the output. Ritu says I keep reading. Reading fantastic books spurs me on to what I want to spurs me on to want to write like that maxine guy says i'm one of those who can't write at night so i try to read out of my comfort zone to learn how others write differently to me or i watch movies or stand-up comedians laughing is good medicine totally agree there natal roberts just like you said allowing yourself to stop producing for a few hours so you can give your brain a rest from having the creative juice squeezed out is helpful and that's it for this week. If you want to get involved and have your answers read out on the podcast, then you can go over to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash great writer share or just search great writer share in the search bar. Or you can get involved in the Patreon group and go over to there as well.
Today's guest is the incomparable James Blatch from the Self-Publishing Formula podcast and one of the directors of Self-Publishing Formula Limited. Um, most people who have listened to his podcast with Mark Dawson will know his voice. He's everywhere in the community. They recently this year ran uh, the Self-Publishing um, Conference, which went just ahead of coronavirus and everything happened to launch and go as it was meant to. But I think it was probably one of the, the last successful writers' conferences of 2020. Um, and yeah, it was really, really great having a chance to catch up with James. I went on to the self-publishing, self-publishing formula podcast uh, a few weeks ago and chatted to James and then he's come on and he's chatted to me and it's really, really interesting seeing things from his perspective because um, he has a very unique lens on writing as someone who interviews a lot of authors um, and he's been working on his same uh, his first book for the last 10 years uh, and he's getting to a point where he's near publishing now and it's really interesting trying to... Like, we, we talk a lot about how he is preparing his expectations for having an audience already built in through the podcast and how that affects his, how he's approaching his book. Um, we talk about the many iterations the book has gone through over the, the last 10 years. I don't think you can write a book over 10 years and not go through substantial changes in terms of what it was, what it turned into, and any other sort of pivots along the way. So we go into that, which is really interesting. And we talk about his journalism career and how that has affected his writing fiction. Um, and James is just a classy guy. He's just a fantastic person. We, I, I really enjoyed this interview. He's great to talk to. And hopefully there's a lot of stuff there that you can take away and learn from. But now, without any further ado, we'll dive into the interview with the one and the only Mr. James Blatch. James Blatch is a former BBC defence reporter and a former BBFC film examiner. He reported for the BBC on the UK military from, among other places, HMS Invincible, Q8, the Arctic Circle, as well as covering the UK air offensive during the Kosovo conflict in 1999. However, you probably know James Blatch as one of the voices of the incredibly rich and popular self-publishing formula podcast, which he co-hosts with thriller author Mark Dawson. James is also a director of the Self-Publishing Formula Limited, an online course provider for independent authors of which I have personally benefited from. James, welcome to the show. Hey, fantastic to be here. This is a bit of a swap season, isn't it? It is, yes. I spoke to you a few weeks back to go on the, the SPF podcast, which I believe is airing. Well, it'll be out by the time this uh, podcast goes live. But yeah, it was nice yeah. having the chance to talk to you. I'm excited to, to get the chance to talk to you again. And I thought I'd start in a place that is a little bit different. Um, and basically, in my research and in in looking into some of the things you're doing, um, going into a bit of your back history, I came across this particular nugget from a interview that you did previously, which was name three things you'd never leave the house without. And they were mobile phone, press pass and thermal underwear. And I was just wondering, because this came out a few years ago, <laughs> if you were to answer that question now, would those change? Well, I don't have a press pass. First of all, can I, can I just say how impressive it is that you do research? <laughs> Thank I you. I think that's, first of all, notable. And uh, I like that. Um, yeah, I don't have a press pass anymore, so I probably wouldn't leave home with that. I think mobile phone is still there. Mm. I suspect when that interview was was done, mobile phone, people, I was expecting people to go, oh, fancy, he's got a mobile phone. <laughs> As now, of course, you know, your three-year-old has a mobile phone. Yeah. Um, so we'll stay with that. The thermal underwear, funnily enough, it, you know, it's one of the hazards of being a journalist is you got cold. And thinner, my thinner colleagues suffered more than the bigger colleagues, but like thinner, particularly some of the girls who are lighter weight, they really suffered, got blue fingers. And you don't realise that we have lots of health and safety. You can imagine that you see several times experienced journalists would, would tell you, as you say, I went to the Arctic Circle, I did go up there, wasn't cold there you're cold standing in a field in East Anglia. 
or you're cold in Downing Street. Actually, it can be a very cold place to stand. You get because you're there for hours. Yeah, you get progressively colder. So thermal underwear at that point in my life was something <laughs> a bit like Arthur Dent's or Ford Prefect's towel. I wouldn't leave the house without. But no, what would it be now? So I suppose it'd be. Um, well, it, obviously, keys are a given because you can't go anywhere without keys. <laughs> I think, honestly, the only thing I wouldn't leave... I, I think my sunnies. Oh, my glasses. Mm. I, can't, I can't leave the house without my glasses. It's a nightmare if I leave the house without my glasses. Has that um, happened before? Is that, is that a regular occurrence? Yes, it happens all the time because I'm like Mr. Magoo. I mean, I'm actually, I'm not that <laughs> short-sighted, except I can't read anything in a shop, so I can't really go shopping. You're always looking at ingredients and instructions. Can't do it, mm. can't do it. It's really, really annoying. I hate it. And I want my friends a really brilliant eye surgeon and I keep saying to him, Fix can't it. you do something about reading glasses? <laughs> Fix yeah. it, yeah. But he won't. He refuses. He says, no, wear glasses and look, look statesman-like. Statesman -like. And he works on glaucoma or whatever. Don't yeah. care about that. Got that yet. Yeah. So I'm going to say glasses, phone. I think that's probably it. Just I'm a man of simple pleasures. Nice. It's better to go through your life and, and, and want less as you're going through anyway. It just makes it easier to get around. So should we do this interview in 25 years' time? It'll be a colostomy bag. <laughs> uh, a note to tell other people who I am and where I live. Yeah, and just a map of how to get back to where you live. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Um, so for my listeners, can you give a little bit of an overview of yourself and your writing journey? Yeah, so my writing journey, um, it wasn't, there wasn't much of it before 2010. Uh, I started and didn't finish two or three books in my 20s, I think. So I sort of, obviously there was a bug there that I wanted to itch, but I joined journalism. So that was in my, I was in computing before I became a journalist. I think during my computing days, I felt this, you know, needed to be doing something more creative and um, yeah, started and finished a couple of, of novels. I think I found one of them a few years ago, Is in the Attic nice. on pages, um, in the old days of writing. Uh, but then I worked as a journalist, which obviously scratched that itch um, in a different sort of way. And I wrote occasional newspaper articles, um, which I really enjoyed, but, uh, but creatively and also it's an exhausting career. So I didn't have time for anything else. But then I left and joined the BBFC, which is very confusing when you work for the BBC to then go and join another organization quite well known called the BBFC. <laughs> I literally changed one initial. Mm. So most people thought I hadn't changed jobs. And there, you sit there watching films and TV all day. Great job. But uh, after three years, obviously, I was there. I'd started in 20, oh, four years. I started in 06. I obviously felt the need again and uh, heard about NaNoWriMo. Literally, on November the 1st in the morning, I saw a tweet from a friend's husband saying, an early tweet in those early days of tweeting, uh, saying, I'm going to do this. And he had a link to it. And I pressed it, read it, and thought, oh, well, I'll do that as well. And I opened this Word document mm. and I started writing this novel. And I, I, I'm, funnily enough, I must have been thinking about it. It's sort of a little bit like one of my early attempts, although set in the UK, not in America. But um, I had become increasingly interested as I got older in my father's career. As you do, I think you become interested in who your parents were and what they did when they were young and that whole side of them. You are incredibly close to your parents, but you never see half their life because mm. you're you know, not born at that point. And all you get is there. And my dad's you know, barely get anything out of him at all in terms of stories. My mum was better, but um, I became really interested in their past life. So it felt really natural and really obvious thing for me to do to write a novel set around my father's time in the Air Force about his circumstance, uh, but otherwise, you know, made up. 
And so I started, it was always, I would say the idea was almost fully formed right from the beginning. And I've done a lot with the book, but the actual idea has not changed. And I don't know where it came from, but obviously that morning it was there and I started tapping out that first scene. So, so I did that NaNoWriMo, got to the 50,000 words in a month, which I was really pleased with. Um, only really did that because I think in week, just going into week two, we still got the enthusiasm. A friend of mine who, back at the BBC heard I was doing it and said, would you come on to You and Yours, which is a Radio 4 programme, and talk about it, talk about doing it. I said, yeah, of course, that's fine. Didn't realise it was like the following Thursday. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I thought, so, so that, I honestly think that's the only reason I kept going. That follow, I've got, and I think that middle bit of NaNoWriMo is really, really difficult. The first week's got enthusiasm. Mm. And then it becomes a chore, even though it's only 16, 1700 words a day. It, you know, if you miss one day, suddenly you've got this big backlog. You don't know yeah. where you're going to catch. If you miss three days, you're probably not going to do it. Simple as that. And um, I kept going religiously. I even bought a little smaller computer for the train <laughs> to fit on my lap if I didn't get one of the nice seats uh, and got to that point. And then once I got to that point, there was only sort of, you know, a week or 10 days left and I finished it. So did that then spent three months actually trying to finish the novel. And by the time I got to the end of the novel, I'd written loads of stuff. I didn't want to stop. I didn't want to go back and revise anything. So it, I had no idea what I was doing, by the way, writing a novel. No idea. <laughs> Do we all? I've never read a book on plot or, you know, I read, but that's it. Hmm. Like, as I got to the second half, I kept inventing new characters and situations that I knew I would have to go back and rewrite sections of the beginning of the novel for that to make sense later. But I thought I'd park that. Uh, well, I did park it <laughs> sort of, uh, for <laughs> several years, and it, it, you know, it did just gather dust uh, until I started SPF and uh, with Mark. And then mm. a year into that, when he wanted to do the 101 course, he told me, "Get your novel out because you're going to be my guinea pig." Here it goes. So, and that was um, 16 or 17, probably 17, I think. Might have been 16, 17 around there. So I started writing it again sort of got to an end of it in 1819 around there and but wasn't happy with it and then did the author accelerator process last year eight so 18 and author accelerator as a book coaching service where they so i basically rewrote the book from beginning to end but this time having talked through the story some of the character journeys at the beginning with a coach who then looked at my scenes week by week as I went through, at least for the first half of the book, second half of the book, I was more, pretty much on my own. Got to the end of that, then put it out to some beaters and got generally very good feedback, but one professional writer saying, it's not ready, uh, people are going to be disappointed. They're, oh, no. they're not going to get to the, they're not going to get through the beginning part. You've got to make some changes. Quite a lot, so two hours of feedback, which is quite depressing, um, which threw me a bit. So I didn't publish it still haven't published it. I went back to Author Accelerator and said, look, this is the position I'm in. It's finished. I think if I didn't talk to anyone else in the world, I would have published it now. Like most people, not in our world of talking to other writers and, and sharing stuff, people who just sit by themselves, they would have uploaded it by now. Mm. But I haven't done. Um, but I, so I want, I want a you know, proper professional advice. I don't mean the other advice wasn't proper, but somebody who I'm paying. So I went back to a development, developmental editor called Dawn Ayuse in Canada, gave it to her, um, and she has read it, and she is now feeding back a letter to me, which arrives tomorrow. 
A letter. All I've had for a letter. She's going to write. She, she described it as a letter. I don't think she's yeah. going to post it. Um, <laughs> I guess it'd be an email. But um, yeah. yeah, she she has said a couple of things that she really liked it, and and she had to remind herself sometimes that she needed to find things wrong with it. So I think which is quite a nice thing. But I'm also expecting her to echo. I think some of the the things I think need fixing. So I get that the fifteenth, which is as we're recording this, it's Bastille Day, by the way, uh, <laughs> is um, is tomorrow. Yeah. So that's a bit nerve wracking. That's right now. And there's a lot to go into there. Um, I'd like to start by just kind of going back a little bit to that initial NaNoWriMo because I think I can't count off the top of my head how many people I've had on this show who have said that NaNoWriMo, NaNoWriMo, however you want to call it, is was the start of their journey. What do you think it was particularly about the concept of NaNoWriMo that, that got the, the, the flames going for your fire? I think it's a, it's a real... Ten- Whatever we say, we all like get-rich-quick schemes. We like the idea of them or, or quick cures to complex problems. We should be suspicious of them in real life. There's no mm-hmm. simple answers to complex problems. But I think NaNoWriMo presents you an opportunity to have a novel done by the end of the month. Uh, how tempting is that? that your novel, you've written it. You don't really think through the, the reality of that. And also no. 50,000 words probably doesn't quite count as a novel. That's a bit rude, actually. Quite a lot of romance books in particular <laughs> can be shorter. But anyway... Um, but it's it's a real attempt. To, it's a I can do this, and it's going to be, you know, painful in the short term, but not very long. A month is no time at all, and you've got mm. a novel. So I think that was incredibly tempting, and that's why I started with a great gusto, like so many people do. I mean, you know, it's a really popular project, isn't it? Yeah. And how did you find that initial surge? Because obviously you have that minimum word count, which I think you said well, is between thirteen hundred, sixteen hundred words around that. How yeah. how did you find? I mean, obviously, you've, you've written stuff for, for, for articles for journalism, so you're no stranger to writing. You've done novels before. Was it a challenge at that point, going into the, the sort of fiction format and then getting those word counts as you were hitting through the first week? Yeah, I think there are two challenges for me. One is that journalism really, television journalism in particular, really teaches you to write very succinctly indeed. Mm. So a typical report for me was 90 seconds is a bit too short for me. I hated 90 seconds, but even a two minute two minute ten report and that was a long report you know my my i did a couple of big feature pieces i remember and i look back at them the other day they're 215 <laughs> that's not very long in a 90 minute 90 second report typical you'd have 45 seconds of your script in there typically and the the rest of it would be taken up with clips from interviewees and you'd have to write into them and out of them and tell a story and have an arc of story and often get quite a complex subject matter over and distilled News had changed. It was starting to change a little bit. More often, they would stick you in front of a camera and do what we call a two-way uh, or down the line, I think they call it in America, where basically the correspondent is asked the questions. There's no packaged report and you explain. So coronavirus at the moment, we're full of that yeah. style of news presentation. And you get to talk a lot more about your complex subjects. Um, but the, the art of the package, which is disappearing a bit, is what I was involved with. So that was a problem because I wrote really succinctly and got straight to the point. To the, well, but people don't necessarily read a novel just to be told A happened, then B happened, then C mm. happened. You know, they are enjoying the prose, enjoying the, but on the other hand, not too much. But so I had to adjust that that um, right at the beginning. Then the second thing was what happens, I suppose, when you start drafting a novel is you have a burst of enthusiasm at the beginning. Then you think, oh God, this is a bit crap, and you <laughs> think, oh, this, this is terrible, and then you read back five pages and you know that's quite good so you you go up and down like this um and there were definitely days this is where nano remo i think you got me now (laughs) 
because there were definitely days when I didn't know where I was going and what to write, but I thought I've just got to write. And once you start writing, mm, it comes. It seems strangely to come, doesn't it? Mm. And, you know, um, so many authors tell me now in the interviews I do that they, in fact, I interviewed Marie uh, Force last week, who genuinely, she, so she says, she genuinely does not know what's going to happen in her books until she writes them. And she's, and there, she, she's book 23 in one of her series is coming out. Wow. Uh, beginning of next year, the last one in that series. So her fans are always asking her, what's going to happen tonight? And she goes, I have no idea. But I can't wait to find out. <laughs> yeah. So that's a bit like that. You know, once you start writing, it sort of takes a life of its own. So they were the two major things for me. And I only really got over the second one because A, it was NaNoWriMo. So there was a process that you kind of had to do. And B, the particular circumstance I put myself in where I, I couldn't mm. turn up to a live interview on Radio 4 and <laughs> quietly tell them I'd stopped doing it t- last week. So Yeah, just fallen into an accidental accountability yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What? How did you? Uh, how did you combat the the nature of what journalism has instilled in you into fiction? So as you went on, were there any particular resources that you used to try and pad out those those descriptions, make it a bit more, um, I guess, rounded as you were as you were heading into fiction? Yeah. I mean, I don't think necessarily I have <laughs> uh, got to that point yet. <laughs> Although weirdly, my book is, I guess, must be quite wordy. It doesn't feel particularly wordy to me, but it's two hundred thousand words. Wow. That's what Dawn, Dawn's yeah. readings. That's a long book. So it's not like I've had a shortage of words. I think my problem is structure, though. I think I probably not properly, because it's, a, and my initial idea was that the whole thing took place over 10 days or 14 days or something. So, and so every day would happen. I based that on the old Nelson DeMille books, which I used to really love as a kid, which were actually doorstops. <laughs> but I remember one of them, By the Rivers of Babylon, I think, took place over about 48 hours. And this is an absolute doorstep. Um, so I think I probably got into this thing with the book where I had to write every day. Mm. But I had to get the character from work and home and, and have these scenes. And actually thinking about it, I didn't, you know, that's not how book writing really works or storytelling works. So that was a learning experience. But um, how did I get over that? I think just reading, to be honest. I think I, I paid a te- more attention to what I was reading than I was doing before. I think I don't don't remember reading a craft book at that stage. Certainly not true. I had no time during Danorimo, but maybe immediately afterwards I started reading and paying attention to what I was reading at night. Mm. And like you say, you started this book in 2010. Obviously, it's still in the works at the minute. And I'm sure there are lots of people out there that, uh, well, I know there are lots of people out there that are tinkering with books that they've had on the back burner that they're chipping away from, from from year to year. Are there any specific evolutions of the book that you can that you can think of? So if you can, because you say it's been through a fair few tweaks. So was there a point where in 2011 it was in one form and then there was a particular change that you brought to the next one? Can you give us a little bit of that journey with the book? Yeah. So 2011, although it was only 110,000 words, I think, when I finished it, it was a... Um, a fairly broad, it broadened out from my initial thing. So, so the central character's wife's parents, he was an old politician in parliament, which became important. And he had a little secret side life and all of that. And when I did 101 and I had that draft to work with, and I had some feedback from Jenny Parrott, uh, another editor who we interview occasionally, and she gave me some good good tips. And she sort of said what she liked about the book and then didn't say what she didn't like, but that was basically everything she hadn't mentioned. So that was <laughs> probably quite a lot of other stuff and it became a bit rambling. So what I did under Mark, I read one of Mark's books actually, 
And I thought he wrote so much more succinctly than I did. This is ironic, isn't it, considering that was my problem. But I think mm. they're two different things. I think it's storytelling and kind of, of literally the passages you write and the way you, you write it are slightly different things. But anyway, so I, I wrote a really bare bones version of it. It was like 48,000 words. It was really like a, my stupid image, you know, um, naive version of a, a page turner. Yeah. Is that this was going to happen so so quickly, and I what I ended up doing was stripping out all the heart from the novel, mm. um, and and it happened so quickly it didn't make a lot of sense, and I kind of knew that. So I then that's when I so that was version two really that was the second rewrite, and the third rewrite was the one I did with the Author Accelerator. Now that was much better because and, and this is something I found out I probably would have told you before Author Accelerator that I was a pantser type thing and that you know, I sat down and the words came as we discussed. But the truth is that process has, has taught me that what I absolutely love doing, at least for this book, because I want to get it out and I can't see the woods from the trees, is having structure. So Author Accelerator, I, I did a, you know, five pages of scenes written out and it wasn't just one line about the scene. It was a, it was a couple of lines about what happened in the scene and then a paragraph of why it's in mm. the book and, you know, what's, why is it relevant and, and why is it happening? And I had all of those written out. So then I really enjoyed rewriting it the second time because of that purpose. And I know some writers hate that. That's an anathema to them. They'd much rather, like Marie Force, couldn't bear the idea of looking down a, a spreadsheet thinking I've got to write scene 98 now where Billy's got to be stabbed at the end. She wants to write and scene and find out what happens as she's writing it. But, but I've so far for this one, I've really enjoyed the structure. Mm. So that's the third iteration. So yeah, there have been three fairly distinct phases to it. The next phase starts tomorrow, by the way. I don't know Exciting. what that holds. Yeah. <laughs> However that comes out. And obviously you're very, very deeply involved in the, the self-publishing um, podcast. Do that every week with Mark Dawson. You interview all these different authors. Um, one thing that I always like to ask people, just because I, I'm worried that because of the people that I very much center myself around, there's very much that culture of, the rapid release, the writing fast, that that is the only model to success. And I just wonder, has any of that penetrated your, your skin? Has any of that gotten into your mind at all? Um, you know, having spent 10 years or so working on this book, does that ever affect your writing or how you're looking at approaching your book? Or are, you, or are you very steady in your approach? The only thing that's affected is, is um, I was determined that there would be other books in this universe um, and the way I've, I've done it was a book two, which I am actually drafting at the moment, is a prequel involving one of the characters, an American character who's on, on overseas duty at uh, the RAF base. So I like that idea. I like the idea of going into the 70s and the 80s, it's set in the 60s, with these characters maybe promoted. And, and so one of the, the, the guy, basically the guy who gave me the feedback that was like, this book's not ready. He said, your main character has to die because of things that had happened in the book narrative. He says, you've got to kill him at the end, or he's got okay. to lose a huge amount. He's got to lose his RAF career. And I'm thinking, no, because that's not how this works. <laughs> and uh, I want there to be a collection of books. I want there to be, yeah, the 50 books to 20K type thing, 20 books to 50K, I should say. Um, uh, yeah, and having a series, series difference in series and serial, isn't it? But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Home Universe books. So that's been an impact on me. Every time I interview somebody, including you, I learn something more about process and approaches to writing, which I find really useful. Um, but a lot of that is just, um, you know, small bits here and there. Um, 
Yeah, I think mainly the thing is is knowing that this is not going to be... I guess before I'd been involved in this universe, I would have just thought, well, I'll write this book and then maybe it'll be successful or maybe it won't. But now I think I'll write this book and it doesn't really matter whether this book's successful or it's just a lost leader for me. Mm. It's books two, three, four and five, potentially if I get there, that I will base a, a financial income on. Yeah. Which is a really open eyes way of writing, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I, definitely a lot more. I, I think it just changes the way that you then approach future books rather than pouring everything you can and just thinking that this book is going to be the make or break, which I think yeah. a lot of a lot of people who want to write the books and novels, wherever they're at, I think that's 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 the killer when people release that first book and it does nothing and they just see that as, you know, they're not being validated, they're done, they're out of the game. And obviously we in the business who've been in the business for a while know that it's it is the long game and it's the pushing pushing the boulder uphill until you eventually do get that that acceleration on the other side and it comes back down yeah and it's crazy really because if they looked around at you know um james patterson or Hmm. um i mean i was gonna say jk rowling but you're trying to think of the almost every other john grisham they all write series of books stephen king and they all started quite hesitantly and badly Mm -hmm. without question so there's no evidence that it's got to be this first book, but you're absolutely right. People who have that novel in them, and I've got a friend now, you know, he's a journalist in, um, in the UK on Sky, and he's talking to me a lot about his novel idea. He's got it's fantastic. It's a really good idea, complex idea, <laughs> but a really good idea. But he will be thinking, I hope this novel's successful, mm. rather than you and I looking at its place in our commercial plan. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think I mentioned uh, when we spoke last time that my I'm, I'm working on a serial at the minute and book one's come out and it's doing moderately well. Um, but I, I know that that's not the t- determination for success. It's, you know, you just have to keep pushing and then hopefully somewhere down the line that that picks up and goes up. Um, and that, that's that's just the model that is the more reliable way to success as opposed to the, yeah. the lightning in a bottle, boom, straight to the top of the charts and, and whatnot. Um, I do, yeah. do want to come to a little bit of uh, how you got involved with the self-publishing podcast and the formula and all that kind of good stuff. Are you right just to give a brief overview for my listeners on how that all came to be and where that began? Yeah, so all randomly really. Um, mm. So I left the BBC and joined the BBFC. And the BBFC, I should say for uh, audiences not in the UK, is the um, film certification organisation in the UK. So it gives out the certificates for films. So we, uh, film and video, it was, I'll say it was a great job. You know, you sat there, you had five and a half hours, knocking on six hours of, of viewing every day, uh, except Wednesdays was half day. So we had a meeting <laughs> on Wednesdays and then I can't remember what it was called. Something it was called like, not sports afternoon, but it was called, you had admin time in, on Wednesday afternoon. A lot of porn. We did a huge amount of porn, but a lot of it, a lot of children's TV and DVD and wrestling. And then two or three times a week, you'd be in the theatre watching a couple of feature films and trailers. So he did, I did that every day. And one of my fellows, fellow examiners when I joined uh, was Mark Dawson, who I didn't know, but he was on the, uh, on the teams there. And we examined together a bit. And John Dyer had just stepped down from being an examiner, but kept on in the BBFC uh, as the education officer. So I knew John. I didn't know either of them very well, whilst I was there. I mean, Mark came to my house once actually thinking about it, but we were quite a close group, but he, you know, we weren't particularly, uh, he and I weren't particularly close at that point. However, John, I got to know afterwards. So John took redundancy in something like 09. I stayed on 
he set up a video production company. I started thinking about redundancy and taking it. So I started to work freelance with him. So I would get work because I had lots of contacts who wanted it. I often got, you know, when you're an ex-BBC reporter, you get a phone call every week from someone saying, can you do me a video? So that was easy for me to bring in some work. And we, he and John and I started this company and it was brilliant. So we ended up traveling the world, went through um, uh, Kenya and Uganda and uh, all part, all through Europe, Poland, and just filming for all sorts of people. But whilst we were doing that, so that was video, and then I did take the redundancy, so we worked full time on that. Um, but we realized we'd created what sounded like a modern company doing video production, but actually it was a very old fashioned service company. You know, we lugged equipment around, we worked for a client who then didn't pay us for three months, and it was all a bit of a struggle. We spent half your life on the phone chasing money, half your life chasing new work a little bit of your life, enjoying your stuff, working. Mm. And so we started casting about, really, for a better way of doing things. And we could started to tune into the online world, the you know, Gary Vaynerchuk and, and yes. people like that who were producing all this material online. And online courses was very up there in our thinking. So purely commercially, we got together with a couple of policemen who – had an idea for taking police training into the online environment and selling back into police forces. So it was a good idea, and we started a company around that. They, in the end, they weren't capable, really, of delivering their side of things, uh, which is the delivering the, the stuff back into the police forces. And they also wouldn't let me or John go into those police forces to sell. We were So it was a weird situation. So we had to walk from that in the end, which was a shame. And I think, actually, we were midway through that and I was in the front of my house, which I'm in my garden office now, which I've had built on the back of SPF. But in nice. my house, I got a phone call from Mark. He said, um, it's Mark from the BBC. Uh, he'd, I had he quit, he'd quit by then. And he said he was thinking about doing an online course to teach people how to self-publish. So couldn't John and I did the video. So he didn't know where to start with the video side of it. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, let's have a cup of coffee in London and chat about it. Put the phone down and thought, well, this is exactly, exactly what we're looking for. And Mark's so much more of a bet, better bet than these two policemen. <laughs> They're nice guys, but came from an unreconstructed, quite institutionalized background. They were a long way. They would never listen to the podcast that we kept telling them to listen to. So we met, uh, so I got John. We went down to the BFI in London, the, the cinema, big cinema in London. Sat at the front, had a cappuccino. Mark's... John and I decided in advance that we thought rather than us charge him to do the video, we'd want a piece of the company if we could get that from Mark, you know. So thought like 50-50 basically. So John and I would be 25% each. He'd be 50%. It'd be his company, his idea. So we went down there. We started talking about it. And then before we had a chance to say anything, Mark said, look, the way I was thinking about it is maybe we'd go 50-50 on this. So you, <laughs> you have 25% each and I'll be 50%. And we went, well, oh, Probably live sounds, with that. Sounds all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's it. And we sketched out. I've still got the the what used to be the back of an envelope. It's now a word document. I've still got it. Um, and it was the idea of this course, which is basically the 101 course. Mm. It's basically a course to tell you what to do after you've written the end on your novel. But we had a bit of a pivot in the three months it took to produce the course and get it out there. It almost killed Mark, and it was too much to do. Because it's, it's there's a lot to do hmm. getting a book to that point. So he decided to focus on one thing, which was Facebook ads to build your mailing list and Facebook ads to sell your book. 
So Facebook has to build your mailing list was like the the um, lead magnet, call it in the commercial terms. So it was a mini course that was free, and we used that to build up a mailing list. Very meta. <laughs> and then and then he just did Facebook ads for authors, and that was the course we launched in June, and it went really well, read really well right mm-hmm. from the beginning. Mainly due, I mean, we did a professional job on the on the video side, but mainly due to Mark's vision. He completely tuned into how this operates. Um, we took on board a lot of the successful online, or he took on board a lot of the on, online course successes, copied them uh, almost verbatim in places if it worked or adapted for us. And uh, yeah, he was, you know, he is without question to this day, he is the strategic genius behind SBF. Yeah. I just run around, I just run around making it happen. <laughs> well, it definitely seems like there's a, there's this powerhouse of, of personalities, of skills. Obviously, SPF is is a roaring success, particularly from how I see it and the people that I speak to within the independent sphere anyway. Um, one, bringing it back a bit to your writing, how has all this experience of being around Mark, of being around all of this education uh, and all these tools, how has that helped you with your writing particularly? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm assuming it's had quite a big impact, but are there any specific things that you've, you've taken away along the way? Um. I mean, one thing hasn't helped is that it takes an almost enormous amount of time to run this company. Mm. So, you know, we've just come out of an incredibly busy period that started in the middle of last year. And just as we thought it would wind down, the launches when we opened the course are relatively routine for us now. Just when we thought it was going to wind down, COVID happened. So we had... From the middle of last year to March, I was organizing a conference. I had no idea it would take hours every day on top of everything else. We did hours every day for those months to organize that conference. And it was a really simple, small conference, really. with incredible amount of effort on not just me. And then, yeah, by the time that, that took place on March the 9th, I mean, it happened by the skin of its teeth. And we were standing there in London saying, well, we're going to ground now, unsure about what would, would happen. Like we all were unsure what's going to happen next. We're going to mm. go into our houses and lock ourselves up, which is weird. So we did that. But then noticed quite well. We, so we made some changes to the company for people going through hardships and so on, like lots of companies did. But then there was a real surge of interest in the courses and a surge of interest in people reading. So authors were feeling that as well. And there was this rising buzz. So it just that naturally, we do, I don't think we cynically sat down and thought we've got to take advantage of this, although that is the correct thing for authors to do, of course, is to put offers out and, and you know, take advantage of a fertile market. But it naturally pushed us into um, overdrive. Um, we, we accelerated some plans we had to have a new course, so Amazon Ads course done. Yes, I'm working through uh, it in a minute. It's very good. Yeah, with Janet, <laughs> very which is good. great. We've also added another course of Prestas on since then. And it's just been, it's, oh, we, launched, and we launched How to Write a Bestseller mm-hmm. uh, course in that time. Um, and, I, you know, I'm exhausted. Where I'm s- <laughs> sitting now, I'm exhausted. I'm going to France on Friday for my first week off. Um, and that won't be a proper week off because I never get a proper week off, but it'll be downtime. So writing, I have not written, I can't remember the last time I wrote on uh, um, Redneck, which is the working title of my next book. Um, but I'm partly, I did think my, the letter was going to get, yes, I did think it was going to come earlier. So I was mm-hmm. sort of realizing I was going to have to make some time for it. So the worst thing it's done is it's taken time away from me. Well, funnily enough, when I had a nine to five job, I had time. <laughs> so I never want to hear somebody with a nine to five job complaining. <laughs> they haven't got time to write because I could write in the morning on the train or in the evening because here I'm, you know, this is a typical evening for me. I'm sitting in my office. Yeah, yeah. I've got a, having a lovely conversation. No. 
yeah absolutely and to be fair you don't look that tired so i don't know if that's that's helpful or for you thank you um i, I did want to ask and, and feel free to to back this away because uh i i like to ask questions about sort of mindset and about like the, the particular mechanics of how people are thinking when they're when they're going through particularly writing their books and that sort of author journey and one thing that uh, i would assume from putting myself in the situation that you're in is that there might that i would probably suffer from quite an element of imposter syndrome in terms of sort of presenting the podcast to people that you're speaking to um and obviously running the course and things and obviously you're doing all the work behind to to make the book happen but is do you get what i mean is there is ever a, a moment yeah, where yeah. imposter syndrome is a problem and if so how do, how do you come to terms with that? i don't it's not imposter syndrome from a point of view of talking to people because I think in some ways, the, the sheer volume of people I talk to, some of whom have been very successful um, indeed, has, has humanized writers for me. They're not, they're not some godlike people who are elsewhere. Podcasts just do people. that. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you work out that the old adage of just basically people sticking at it mm. is, you know, working hard is what delivers goods. It's not, it's not magic fairy dust Stephen King wasn't born with some innate ability to write he read a lot wrote a lot and gradually got to the point where he could tell a story better than anyone else on the planet didn't happen to him straight away same as everyone else so it's it's humanized it for me not dehumanized it (laughs) the imposter syndrome is there in well the lack of confidence in my book is there and I think that's probably a natural thing but I I, I sort of put it off in a way. I'll put it off until it's published. The problem, the problem is not, it's not me talking to authors and thinking, oh, you're much better than me. Although almost every author I speak to, of course, is better than me because I'm talking to them because they're successful and I have no success at all. The problem is because of the podcast and my position, there are lots of people I think are going to give this book a go. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many are going to finish it, but I think a lot of people are going to be supportive, which is great. They're going to buy it, which would be amazing. And they're going to try and read it. And that probably doesn't happen to even Marie Force or Lindsay yeah. Broker or you know anyone else I could name who comes come to our podcast. They get their fans fallen off to them. But Mark and I sort of have fans. You know, it's 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 not not fans in the writing sense, but people like the SPF. They like the show. They they love the story of me writing, and I love the story of me writing. Even though I sometimes look at it from slightly you know um, beside myself. And so they're curious to know what the book's going to be. So I do worry about that. It's a very unique position to launch a book from. Um, and I know that certain podcasts where they've got authors who are running it, they'll, they'll often hide the identity of their books, obviously, to, to yes. get rid of that risk. And I've, I've been the same as you. I'm, I try and be as transparent as possible. I've, I've not hidden to anybody on this podcast the name of my books, anything that I'm writing. Um, obviously, preferably, you only want the people who the book is for to read it because of also bots and algorithms and all, yes. all that kind of good stuff. But um, it is... I, I was just before we came on to the, the interview, I was just trying to imagine what it would be like to be in that position where obviously, because you do have a very, very big base for the self publishing podcast. A lot of people listen to that show. Um, so there must be that element of pressure. And I, I, I guess one question after that is do you have any particular methods to put that method, uh, put that method, put that pressure away from you to keep it at arm's bay while you're working on that? How, how do you actually approach it when, you, when you're sitting down and you're face to face with your book? I ignore it because it seems yeah. so far off the possibility of it ever being published at any one point in my life. So I just ignore it. And I think uh, I did start to think about it when the book looked like it might get published earlier this year or end of last year. And I did get nervous about it. And I did <laughs> feel myself 
almost casting around for a reason not to publish it. Um, but I think basically I'm quite good at ignoring things that don't need worrying about at this moment. But I will worry about it, I think. Do you think you're I going to have... Oh, go I, I'm just going to gird my loins and publish it, though. I'm not, not, um, not going to be uh, afraid to do that. But, and I'll take some, take some flack and take some f- false, critis- uh, false praise probably as well. <laughs> Initiate yourself into the circle. That would be worse. Yeah. People being polite will be worse than somebody saying, oh, it's not for me. I, I, I get that. I get that. I get uh, family members and friends that are just like, oh, I should read your books. And I know they're not horror fans. And I'm like, why? Yeah. I, don't, yeah, I don't, don't expect that from yeah. you. It doesn't do anyone any favours. Do you yeah. feel like you'll have a gauge of when the book's ready? Because obviously it's been through a few iterations. You, you, you said that you feel like it's coming close to, to where you want it to be. Do you feel like mm. you're going to have that, that gut feeling of, yes, it's well, ready? I always had this idea from a year or so ago, I had this idea that I would tie it into the release of Top Gun 2. Okay. Because it is a military thriller, although it is Cold War 1960s. After Top Gun came out, the world went a bit crazy for anything like that. I mean, there were all sorts of spin-offs in books and films and a terrible Iron Eagle series. And just to mention a few, uh, I'll mention one of them. Um, So I thought Top Gun being out would be a good time publicity-wise, for my book to catch people's eyes. Uh, Maybe, you know, kids who don't go to the cinema that often will go and see Maverick, uh, Top Gun 2. And so I thought that'd be a good thing. Now, that was due to come out this week in June. So I did think at the beginning of this year, could I do that? I need to pull my finger out and then realise I was going to, it was slipping, I'm going to miss it. I think today, or even maybe, Yesterday, or maybe even today, it was announced that Top Gun 2 is being officially put back to December the 23rd. Ah, handy. So that does <laughs> give me time. I don't necessarily need to wait until December the 23rd, but um, I think that is an absolute deadline for me from where I'm sitting here to have it done and dusted at that point. Exciting. I, I have one more main question from myself before we go into the Patreon questions, and it's a question that I ask every author that comes on the show, and that is, why do you, James Black, write? Um, I think I wrote this book, this book, because it tries to explain who I am. In a, and I don't mean my personality. It tries to explain the product and the environment of which I was brought up in, mm-hmm. which is a very austere, uh, emotionally austere, I should say, not, not financially middle class, nicely off. There's never been particularly, uh, I can't claim that kind of fighting spirit but i can claim the father who doesn't hug or kiss or say i love you because that's just not who he is and would make him very uncomfortable now i've tried to be the opposite with my kids and become interested in why he was like that his father was in the first world war in the trenches and came out of that not particularly well um you know in his mental health and this book is is almost like a fantasy book where there's this young character who's effectively my dad gets this opportunity with a sudden event that happens to make a choice about to go down that route put his head down ignore the deaths that happen when you're in that environment and gradually that ebbs away and and you retreat into yourself or stand up at that point say I can't do this it's got to be another way so he comes this this fork in the road which my father didn't get that opportunity to do Mm. so that's why I write to find out who I am, which is a rather poncy answer, isn't it? But um, I love it. that's sort of where that comes from. So, 
Perfect. Okay, so into Patreon questions now. And these questions were sent over by everyone over at patreon.com forward slash great writer share. Um, and I had a few questions that were pretty much along the lines of, is your book done yet? And I think we've covered that. Uh, so thanks, Meg. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, HB Line says, I'd like to know how you approach uh, using your background in your writing. I think we covered some of that, but is there anything else that you can think of that you'd like to flesh out? With? Yeah, my, my most useful background, actually, uh, there's not a lot of journalism. In fact, almost zero journalism in this book. Uh, I, ha- I do hate the way journalists are normally portrayed in, in um, film and TV and books. So maybe I'll put journalists at some point in another book. But the biggest thing for me was I obsessively hung around the armed forces when I was a BBC reporter. It's the only thing I really enjoyed doing. So staying on HMS Invincible, I did two, two um, embeds on HMS Invincible, living on an aircraft carrier, which I absolutely loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and never got a proper embed in the Middle East, but spent a lot of time, particularly with the Air Force, uh, out there but a lot of time back in the UK in the mess drinking I got to fly with them I got involved in the banter that has been immensely useful to me um, in writing this book and in particular one awful day when on Friday lunchtime when somebody who I'd I was with the week before on the Friday before his jet went into the ground in the north of England he was killed instantly and suddenly I, I was up there obviously covering it for the BBC but they also unbeknown to the other press, took me onto the station um, before to have a, ch- a word with them because they was, he was actually in charge. He was the station commander. Wow. And um, they were a little bit leaderless and they wanted to have a chat with me for what sort of questions are we going to get? How's this going to pan out? And I was able to calm down. I went in there and saw people in tears. Uh, everything was happening and I you know, gave them some advice. And we did it and we went through the lives. <clears throat> and as I finished, they said, and this is like you know, 7.30 o'clock, 7.30 at night, it was dark, it was winter, they said, do you want to come to the mess for a drink? And I walked into the mess and the mess was absolutely packed. And the no smoking wall was out the window. Smoke hung from the ceiling. It was loud. People were already quite well oiled. And that's how it happened. That's how they deal with it. Mm-hmm. They don't do what the Americans did. The Americans lost a, a fighter and a pilot uh, a couple of weeks ago in the North Sea. And I know that they had... People at home, people were sent home, they had church services and vigils. That's not how the RAF do it. The RAF go into the mess, they drink, they tell stories about their friend, they cry, and then the next day they put their uniform on or their flying clothing on and they get back into the jet. Now, being being in the middle of that and understanding that culture and enjoying it and having sympathy for that culture as well, I think has been enormously helpful to me in writing this book. Um, not a lot of people know that's how they what it actually what it feels like but if I can bring some of that authenticity to this book I would have done my job Mm. perfect uh Ian J Middleton says I really enjoyed listening to your interview on the writers inc the other week with Jay Thorne and JD Barker um from your experience in journalism do you have any tips for interviewing people yeah my number one tip for interviewing people is to listen to the answers I give waffly long answers. So you've got a really tough job, Dan, but you're doing very well. But honestly, it's, I've learned more about interviewing doing these podcasts than I did in the BBC because your interviews are quite quick. We did what we call clip searching interviews most of the time. So you get a government minister in front of you, whoever, and you ask them basically the same question over and over again, phrased differently to get one clip you're going to use on the news that night. They're not properly rounded interviews. There's only Andrew Neer and a few others get to do those. These interviews I do week in, week out. I've learned the number one thing is to listen to the answer. What you do at the beginning when you're nervous and do these interviews is you ask a question, they answer it, 
and then you ask your next question because it's written down there and then they very yeah. politely say well i have just sort of answered that but let me you know and then you realize you haven't really changed so once you start listening to the answers it becomes much more conversational it starts to take its own narrative turns the interview um so that's it's, it's as simple as that it's not worry about the question you have if you want to have for safety those questions written down fine but listen to the answers and let the interview flow that way that's my only tip for interviewing yeah you learn very quickly that being the interviewer no one actually cares what you're asking because people no. tune in to listen to the interviewee so yeah absolutely um one final one which is from a mutual friend uh, who i will <laughs> i'll let you guess who it is but i I'm, i partnered this with a another quote that i got from an article that you wrote uh in which you say in one admittedly drunken moment i shook on a deal with sasha black that the book would be completed within 12 months man i must have been drunk sasha black asks how many pints do you owe her well, I think we shook on that deal in, was it April 2020? Something like that? No, maybe not. Um, so yeah. when was that? We think that <laughs> think was, was 2018, wasn't it? Yeah, 2018. <laughs> oh, I well, I was drunk. It's my only excuse. A lot of things happen at LBF, uh, London Book Fair, when you're half cut. I need yes, to go. I've not been yet. Feel, it did feel at that stage that it would be done. So in my defense, I thought at this stage, I'm on the, on the runway now. And actually, uh, it was after that I started the author accelerator process. And that really felt to me like it could be done, although I knew it wouldn't be done by April. I don't know, what can I say? Sasha's never going to let it go, but uh, she will have the first copy. As soon as I've done that POD approval version, I shall send it in the post to her and say, for God's sake, Black, leave me alone. Amazing. Perfect. Okay, so we are going to move into the quick fire round. The quick fire round is 10 questions. I'm going to throw at you as quickly as possible. Feel free, feel free to say pass if you want to. It's all in good fun. There's nothing serious <laughs> here. But are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, World War One or World War II? Ooh, oh, God, that's difficult too, probably. One means a lot to me emotionally and from a family point of view, but two is mechanically a much more, and politically a much more interesting war. What's a typical breakfast for you? Uh, very similar. Muesli, yoghurt and a bit of fruit. What are you currently reading? I am reading, I'm reading Robert Story's Ancient Origin series, which I'm marketing. And they're very long books, but I'm reading that. I've just downloaded Mary Trump's expose book of her uncle. I'm interested. Yeah. yeah. So I'm on holiday next week and that's going to be my holiday read. I have also bought Stephen King's uh, On Writing, which I've never read. And people do talk about it being a... Blasphemy. Yeah, so I have to read that. So I've got two holiday reads for next week, Mary Trump and Stephen King. But yes, I'm reading Robert Story's Ancient Origins series at the moment. I I feel we're about to commission a seventh book in this series from a ghostwriter, and I really feel that I need to have Mm. the series under my belt. And as I say, they're 130,000 words each, and there's six of them, so it's taken a while. I'm really enjoying them. Yeah. Do you prefer being the interviewer or the interviewee? Interviewer. It's difficult being interviewed. Yeah. Yes, I have a golden Labrador called Dora and a miserable black cat called... What's the cat called? <laughs> Prim. Primrose. Prim. I can't believe that. That's terrible. I forgot. So we, are, <laughs> we, do treat her, we do treat her well. People. Yeah, and you, you have said that you're tired as well. Uh, Avro Vulcan or Supermarine Spitfire? Vulcan. Where's one place Old you're dying to visit? Um, I have... Never been to Herculaneum or Pompeii, and that's on my bucket list, and I can't seem to persuade the family about that. <laughs> um, and 
uh, I've never really explored the Far East. I've been there a couple of times briefly, but nice. But I've been to quite a lot of other far-flung places, so they're the couple that are left. What's your hidden talent? What's my hidden talent? I don't know if I have any talents that are on show, let alone I hidden. I want you to say they're like beatbox or something. <laughs> uh, I'm actually, I'm not a bad cyclist. Okay. We go uh, out in a group and I'm, I'm not the worst. Yeah. What's one Christmas present you wished you got but never received? I don't know if I have one of those. I have, I have that Christmas present that I couldn't believe I got and absolutely loved as a child and screamed with excitement, which was a, a plastic aircraft carrier that you land a plane on. Amazing. You attached it to you above, above your stairs. You sat at the top of the stairs and you flew the plane down and caught the air. Well, I absolutely loved that. But I can't remember not, get, not receiving one. Nice. When was the last time you belly laughed? Um, I am starting to watch the US office, which I didn't watch the first time around. My wife loved it, but it's my lunchtime thing. I go and have a, I'm trying to get out of the office at lunchtime. So I've started watching that and I have belly laughed at that this week. <laughs> nice. And that's 10 questions. One bonus question is where can my listeners find out everything about yourself and all that you're working on? That's very kind of you to ask, Dan. So selfpublishingformula.com is the place where we live on the, uh, on the internet with, um, with Mark. And you can find all our resources there. So that mini course I talked to you about, which we keep up to date on how to use Facebook ads to build your mailing list is there. It's for free. A couple of other free courses there and links to our paid courses, um, should you be interested in those. So how to write a bestseller, a new one coming along soon, which is how to revise your book with Jenny Nash. And me, I'm at jamesblatch.com, um, which is, I think, a work in progress. So it's something, something is there for sure at the moment, yes. but probably needs to be tidied up. And there's a mailing list that you can join, should you be interested in finding out when the last flight comes out. Which, yes. Who knows? I think I speak for us all when I say we're, we're massively anticipating its launch. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I'll put, I'll, I'll put all the links to that in the show notes. Um, and I can personally attest to the ads for authors course. So definitely if you're an author looking into getting into the self-publishing game, then check all that stuff out. Uh, but James, thank you so much for joining me and for giving me some of your precious time. It's been a blast to catch up again. It's been uh, my pleasure. Absolutely loved it. Thank you. Beautiful. And thank you everyone for listening and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Great Writer Share podcast. Next week, I'll be joined by YouTube sensation, Megalator. Don't forget, you can get early access to every episode of the Great Writer Share podcast and the chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions just by becoming a patron of the show. All you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash Great Writer Share and support the show for as little as $1 a month. One more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash Great Writer Share. Until next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, y'all, this is Kenya, creative director and co-founder of Domino Sound. And this is Alexandra De Palma, executive producer and co-founder of Domino Sound. And we're a queer, disabled, Black woman-owned podcast production company and network, creating authentic, inclusive, provocative content. 
We just launched Domino Presents, which is a new series of special audio projects. The premiere episode features the founders of Poppy Juice, the queer art collective throwing the hottest parties in New York City and around the world. We also recommend The Cheat Code, our hit 10-episode audio soap opera surrounding a love affair. Think love and hip-hop meets The Affair meets The Sopranos. Follow us on IG at dominosoundco to keep up. And listen to our shows on the ACAST app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Domino Sound. ACAST, 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 ACAST recommends. recommends.